Well, welcome. I'm Susan Parker, and I'm here with Tim Reagan of ELR Search. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Larry Richard, and we're talking about how to make lateral acquisition and integration uh, strategies and, and to positively impact retention uh, more successfully. Um, and so, Dr. Larry uh, Richard, I, I welcome you. Thank you for being here. Uh, we've known each other about five years, and it's just been a pleasure kind of picking your brain and learning from you. And I, I love the work you're doing. I've heard you speak at different conferences. I know the work you're doing to try to drive um, performance for law firms and for lawyers um, by using positive psychology and applied behavioral science. So thanks so much for being here, and thanks so much for the work you do. Thanks, Susan. My pleasure. Well, so last time we talked... Um, about a few different topics related to the psychology of uncertainty and how that impacts lawyers and 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 ultimately law firms um, and all the uncertainty that's been going on in the world today. Um, today we're going to talk. Uh, you're going to talk about the psychology of habit formation, and and we're going to kind of see how that impacts these acquisition, integration, and retention strategies. Great. So talk to us about how that connects. Last time we talked about the uncertainty. What, what about this, this idea of habit of psychology and, and, and how does that impact kind of the topic at hand? So a lot of law firms have declared dates or you know, target dates when people are so-called returning to work. And they have done that, if, if I look at the messaging, that I'm hearing on the various uh, sites, it sounds like they're just assuming that we can flip a switch. We can tell people, okay, most people are vaccinated. You know, the worries that we had in 2020 and 2021, early 2021, they're behind us. So it's a relatively renormalized landscape, and we expect you to just come back to work, no problem. And I've talked to people in some firms where they're saying uh, they've given us specific days. Most common I hear is you must be in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I've talked to other firms where they say, we want you to have a minimum of three days every week in the office, but it's up to you to choose which ones. And I've talked to still other firms who say it's flexible. Do your best, but try to spend some time in the office. Well, that's all... Uh, well and good to say, but the problem is there is ample evidence that people simply do not want to return to work. There's a lot more anxiety than, than people realize. There have been several reports and studies published just in the past week or two suggesting that huge numbers, one study said something like 75 or 76%, if I recall, of the people surveyed said, I'm not ready to return to a physical location full-time. Uh, and, and other experiments about two months ago, a number of the large uh, banks mandated, you must return to work. You don't have a choice in the matter. We want you physically in the office. And they had the highest quit rates that they've ever had. The basic message here is that there is still a lot of uncertainty and correspondingly, a lot of anxiety out there in the, the general population and certainly among the legal profession. And that means that we have to be mindful 
about the psychology when we invite people to return to work. Before you before you start that, is it is it anxiety that people don't want to go back to work or do they just not want to return to work? I think it's a combination of things, Tim. Anxiety is one of them. The fact that people have spent two years building a habit. See, when we when we started in March 2020, most people had a routine of going to work five, six, in some cases, seven days a week. Uh, and that was our norm. That was our habit. And we had a lot of boundaries. We had demarcation. You, you get up in the morning at home, you do your morning routine, you get dressed, you go to work through some, you know, mechanism. And there's a, the, the travel was itself kind of a psychological marker that says you're now transitioning from your personal routine to your work routine. But when we suddenly went into lockdown in March, 2020, personal and work blended and it became a brand new reality. And at first it was hard for everybody because we just weren't used to working that way, except for a small handful of people like myself who'd always work from home. Uh, most people had to deal with those boundary issues and deal with, you know, if you're school age uh, parents of kids, uh, you know, parents of school age kids, what do you do when the kids have to do their homework at home and you have to do work at home? What do you do if you are caring for somebody who's elderly? What do you do if you yourself uh, get sick? There were lots of challenging logistical problems that people had to deal with. But after a while, we figured all that out and people habituated. It takes, you'll, you'll hear a lot of uh, kind of rules of thumb in the pop science literature, pop psychology literature, like I frequently hear takes 21 days to form a habit. There's no scientific evidence for that. Habits can form very quickly. They can form in, in a day and they can take several weeks to form, uh, depending on the kind of habit, the any unlearning that you have to do and a certain other factor. So one thing we do know though, is that when you're at home for two years, that's long enough. And so we've all formed a new habit. People have also during that time that that new habit was forming, they've experienced some for the first time, some not time to reflect about their job in a way that they hadn't had before. They got a chance to rethink is this the job I really want? Do I like the working conditions? Do I like the work itself that I'm doing? Do I like the people that I'm working with? Do I like the level of autonomy that I have? Do I feel that this is a pathway toward what I ultimately want? And so forth. And a lot of people asking those questions of themselves came up with answers that said, no, I don't think this is the right path for me. I need to make some adjustments ranging all the way from, I need to change the way I work in terms of whether I'm full-time present or working part-time at home or whether I work remotely. Some people move to more, you know, scenic areas of the country. Um, some people decided to change jobs. There's even a small subset of those called boomerang employees who went to their new jobs and then said, Hey, wait, this sucks just as much as my previous job did, but now I don't even have my friends and they're coming back to their old firms. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, I'll say more about that later. But the point is, the point is this was a time, not so much, you know, initially they were calling it the great resignation, but I've since seen a number of articles that are saying it's better to call this time period. We're in the great reflection. 
Yeah. Because it's almost like are people are recalibrating what's important to them. They're looking at their values what... and they're saying, why am I acting like this? Why am I doing what, you know, I've been told is the thing to do when I, it's not in line with what's important to me. That's right. And so there are many, many, many reasons on the table about why people are reluctant to recommit to the full workplace that they had pre-COVID. And I personally don't think we're ever gonna see the level of commitment to a nine to five, five day a week workplace. You know, the, the metaphor someone once used with me years ago was, you go to the store and you buy a shirt and you take it out of that nice cellophane packaging, you know, and then take all the pins out and all of the tissue paper and you try it on you, ah, oh, this, this one doesn't fit. You're never going to get it back in the package the way it came. Right, right, right. That's a great. And we're enough. kind of at that. We're kind of at that point right now. We're never going to get it in, back in the package that way again. And I think that leaders in law firms need to make some adjustments for the fact that number one, talent is their most important uh, resource, and number two, their talent are giving clear messages that they want a new way of working, and that the way we did it pre-COVID just isn't for a lot of them, it isn't what they want. There have been some reports suggesting that this varies by age or experience. So for example, one study I saw said that more experienced lawyers uh, want to work at home more and, and the younger millennial age uh, lawyers are interested in more time in the office because it gives them exposure, they're more likely to get work, they haven't already built their reputations and so forth. But then I saw a more recent report that said, no, it's actually the opposite. Young people are staying home more because they're more adept at technology and so forth. So I don't know who to believe. I don't think we have good data on this. But the point is, no one knows at this point. There's a lot of, a lot of different narratives out there and the dust is still settling. And we cannot, I think, I think law firm leaders make a mistake to assume everybody's ready to go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Just the fact that we're tired of the pandemic doesn't mean that we're going to return to the pre-pandemic routine. Right. So thinking about the work that you do, Larry, in law firms and how you help, because what you've done now is just sort of give us the, the framework or the, the basis of, of what, you know, why people are acting the way they are. Right. And then, and then the next step then is to say, okay, how do we help our law firm clients think through this and, and take some action that can mitigate some of the negative consequences of, of what you're describing? So the habit formation will come naturally once you establish a desirable pattern. The word desirable is key here because what you want is not to mandate. Mandating doesn't work with most people in general because you pay a price when you mandate people. People in general like autonomy. It's one of the three major uh, motivational factors in the most widely accepted theory of motivation by DC and Ryan, which is called self-determination theory. And their theory says that the level of autonomy that people have, their sense of belonging to an organization and to a team and feeling like they're part of something bigger than themselves, and their sense of mastery and competence, those are the three main motivators. And on the autonomy component, People in general don't like being told what to do. They don't want to feel like the choices have been uh, compromised. When you mandate people to come to work, 
they feel compromised. Now they may do it because people are obedient. They don't want to lose their income stream, but they do it with resentment. And so that's not a good thing because you don't, there's, there's actually study uh, research out of Case Western University uh, doing some neuroscience studies showing that when you put people in a negative emotional state, such as by mandating return to work, it compromises the functioning of their hippocampus, which regulates memory and learning. So you actually make it harder for them to be good lawyers because they're the very, you know, one of the very important brain regions that they use to be good lawyers is now short circuited. And any lessons you're trying to teach them by that duress are actually not going to stick. So really, you think you're doing yourself a favor by mandating it, and you're not. You're not. You're not. And what I said applies to people in general. You may recall from our previous conversation that the lawyer personality traits that are atypical and very strong, stronger than those in the general public, that lawyers possess actually amplifies everything that I just said about people in general. So if people in general don't like being told what to do, lawyers really, really don't like being told what to do. We take that to an art form. So when you mandate lawyers, their initial immediate response is, oh, yeah, we'll see about that. Mandate this. So when we, you know, we're in the business of helping firms acquire talent, but we are really you know, part of the reason we're having this conversation is we really care about that successful integration and the retention of talent. So how does this, you know, when you're talking to law firms, how do these concepts apply and, and what are some of the techniques that you suggest to help deal with, with these circumstances of where people are dealing with uncertainty, they're dealing with change, and maybe they've joined a new firm and that even makes things even more maybe dicey. So before we get to actual techniques, Susan, I want to talk about the mindset that we must adopt before we deploy those techniques, because that is far more important than the actual techniques themselves. They're both important, but if you don't have the right mindset, the techniques will fail. So what is that mindset? I just said a moment ago, we don't want to mandate. Is it good enough to just not mandate? No, I think we have to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and adopt a much more supportive, people-oriented mindset with our employees, with our talent. And what I mean by that is we are used to a world pre-COVID where people built culture by physically being in the office And through the little informal actions that we all go through, we don't even think about. They're throwaway things like you're walking down the hallway. Every now and then you see the same person and you get to know them. You feel more comfortable. Just by seeing somebody repeatedly, your trust level goes up. When you say hello to them, you make eye contact. Eye contact. University of, of North Carolina, Barbara Fredrickson, has shown that eye contact releases oxytocin, which is a trust and bonding hormone. So just repeated incidents, repeated moments of making eye contact in the hallway without even doing anything beyond that builds trust. We poke our head into somebody's office, um, you know, uh, informally and, and uh, impulsively, and we have a conversation with them, and you start building trust and relationship with that person. 
we have meetings, um, spontaneous or regular, in person, and we get to know people, hear how they think, say things that may be a little risky, and get accepted for those risky thoughts. All of these things build culture and community. And in the new world that we're talking about, we may not have the benefit of these things. We may not have everybody in the same place at the same time physically. And so I think we're going to need going forward a completely new set of techniques and mindsets in order to, to continue to build the kinds of trust and cultures that we need to make people loyal to this institution that's bigger than themselves. Right now, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of evidence that it's each person for him or herself. People are leaving in record numbers. There's less loyalty. We're seeing some marquee law firms that never lost anybody losing some people uh, to other firms. We're seeing um, people less interested in taking care of each other and more out for themselves. That is corresponding to the drop in empathy that's been measured in several studies. All of these are indicators that line up to tell us the same story. People are more self-focused and less focused on community. And I believe that going forward, because of the shifts that we've seen post-COVID or post-lockdown, we can expect that we're going to live in a completely different world regarding this this dimension. We're not going to have the advantage of being able to build culture through the face-to-face stuff that we always counted on. So what can we put in its place? This is where we get to techniques. And actually, let me say one more word about mindset. I said we have to go a little bit beyond just not mandating. It's not enough to just say, okay, come in when you want. I think we have to develop a mindset, especially leaders, that says, I see you. I see you as an individual. I see who you are. I see what you want in terms of the experience you want in the workplace. And I'm actually making efforts on a regular basis, making adjustments even, to try to help you get what you need. If I'm an employee in a workplace that does that for me, I may not have the historically good benefits of face-to-face contact that makes me feel loyal to the organization, but now I have something new. Now I have a feeling of somebody in my law firm sees me and sees who I really am and accepts me for that and is actually affirmatively going out of their way to help me have a great experience in my workplace. That's worth its weight in gold somebody could offer me 50% more money at another firm and there's too much of a risk that I'll lose this great intangible. I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay here. In other words, we have to shift to a mindset that says the employee comes first in a very, very significantly elevated way compared to the way we've taken the, that phrase pre, pre-COVID. We have to put more of our eggs in the basket of trying to see each employee as an individual, learn what makes them tick, learn what their strengths are and help them know what their strengths are and train all of our people in supervisory roles to to pay attention to bringing out the best in our people. That can be done remotely and that can be done through policy level implementations. It can be done through 
what what Richard Thaler and Kaz Sunstein have called nudges, and it can be done uh, in ways that uh, compensate for what we've lost from the diminished face time. That makes so much sense. And we've all seen circumstances and been involved in ourselves where a firm or an organization for whom we work says people are our most important resources, and yet they don't really walk the talk, right? Um, and, and many people in my experience over the years and the work that I've done around talent development and acquisition and, and just that whole talent life cycle is many people feel invisible. And feeling invisible means that you you don't feel like you belong, you're not understood, and all those things mean that you're really not well integrated, you're not bought into to sort of the uh, or aligned with the goals of the organization, and you're at risk for leaving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what are some of the techniques for building this idea of bringing out the best in every person? Let's start with strengths. There is more research and research going back longer on the strengths that individuals have and how to deploy those strengths and leverage those strengths than any of the other areas in this relatively new field of positive psychology. Positive psychology is often, uh, you know, it's often said that positive psychology started with Marty Seligman's tenure as uh, American Psychological Association president in 1998. But the strengths literature goes back to 1940-something. The Gallup organization started looking at strengths in the late 40s. It was a seminal article by Don Clifton, who founded the modern Gallup organization. This article came out in 1950 and talked about the research that they did on the Nebraska school system, showing that when they gave two comparable groups of students, very large cohorts, by the way, 6,000 10th graders. They gave, they divided them into two groups and basically, sorry, they divided them into four groups, uh, basically based on how well they could read fast, speed reading. And then they trained all four of the groups in an intensive speed reading training program. And their, their question, and this was not just, you know, today we have a training program. It's a two-hour webinar, right? This was six weeks, five days a week, in-person training. Six weeks. Imagine the amount of training they did. They trained every single student, all 6,000 students, in how to speed read. And their question was, would there be any impact on the level of skill that they already brought to the training. So would people who had less skill learn more than people who already were skilled? Would they be kind of immune to the training because they already had the skill? Well, they found an interesting result. They found that it worked just the opposite of what they had predicted. They predicted the people with less training would learn more from being exposed to the exact same training program. And it turned out that the people who were on the lower quartile of the training program, whose speed was 90 words a minute when they started, they had a pretty substantial improvement as you'd expect after six weeks of intense training. They went from 90 words to to, 200, to 150 words a minute. The other group, the top quartile, started way, way beyond the finish point of the low group. They started at 350 words a minute instead of 90. But at the end of the same training program, 
they ended up at 2,900 words a minute. 2,900 words a minute. I mean, that's like, that's more than 10 times where they started. And the reason that they improve so much, and by the way, in post-tests, they sustained their learning, whereas the lower group lost much of what they learned. So it turns out that the takeaway from this 1950 study is that when people are trained in doing what they already do well, when they're given a chance to get better at the things they love and do well, they love the training. They pay more attention. They take in more. They learn better and they retain longer. Whereas people who aren't as good at something aren't as good at it for a reason. And when you try to teach a squirrel to fly, you don't get great results. Right, right. You know? Right. But, but uh, when you take somebody and teach them to do better at what they already do best, then you really see long-term solid improvements that stick. So strengths have this long history of improvement. Also, when you look at the other areas of positive psychology, and they've looked at a lot of things scientifically, they've looked at things like gratitude and um, you know helping behaviors. They've looked at meditation and mindfulness. They've looked at breathing. They've looked at um, you know all kinds of things. Of all of those areas that have been studied that are ways to improve the human condition, strengths is the least touchy-feely. It's the, when you say to somebody, I'm going to teach you some breathing exercises, you can imagine the number of lawyers who roll their eyeballs. Right, right, right. Same with meditation, same with yoga, same with almost all of the positive psychology interventions that work well. Even the most important intervention, which is social connection. When you say to lawyers, we're going to help you build more intimate, vulnerable connections, they're like, where's the exit? (laughs) And how fast can I get there? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But when you talk about, can I help you do better at what you love doing and are really good at? Every lawyer says, great, I'm in. Yeah. So it's really a no resistance kind of training. So that's why I put that first So do you use Clifton Strength Finders and or similar type assessments when you're working with clients? I use three different approaches to assessing strengths. Sometimes I use all three. Sometimes I use one or the other or combination. So the first one is the Gallup, uh, which is now called the Clifton, uh, Clifton Strengths Assessment. It's be called the Strengths Finder. Um, they changed the name to honor Don Clifton because he died in, in 2003, and uh, they wanted to uh, honor him for being the, the founder of this tool. Uh, so Clifton is a great tool. It gives you really, really useful feedback. Gallup has measured something like 30 million people around the world since they started using this tool. There's just nothing that comes close to it. And, and so they have a huge database. So when you look at your scores and you compare them to the database, you can really see something solid about, you know, what other behaviors do other people do who have this strength and so forth. Uh, and I have some database about uh, how lawyers in particular score on these strengths. So I can look at those comparisons as well. The second is the VIA, the values in action. Uh, if, if you go to viacharacter.org, all one word, via character, um, that is a, uh, a different test. It measures character strengths as opposed to Gallup's workplace strengths. These are positive character traits that very, very comprehensive, thorough 
and scientifically valid research identified in the 1990s. This was Marty Seligman and Chris Peterson at University of Michigan. They did really, really superb research with dozens and dozens of social scientists um, and, and tremendous funding from the Templeton Foundation and others to try to understand the scientific evidence about things that made people thrive. And this was their effort was to, to do things that were universal. So they left out any characteristics, for example, autonomy that are prized in the US, for example, but not prized in many Asian countries. Everything in their system is universal. You can go to country after country after country around the world and talk about um, character strengths like, like um, uh, you know, teamwork or sense of humor or curiosity. And those are all seen as positive in every culture. And so these are useful strengths to understand as well. They're particularly useful for leadership because when leaders evidence high levels of competence around character strengths, um, evidence from um, studies that were done by um, Zenger and Falkman, John Zenger and Joe Falkman, show that leader competence is what really makes constituents of leaders buy into their leadership and follow them. So the character strengths are good for leadership training. And then the third technique I use is not a formal assessment. It's more of an OD intervention where I have people, I, I give them an assignment that helps them um, introspect and identify based on a couple of uh, probes that I offer them, uh, you know, sentence, sentence stem probes, um, you know, think of a time when dot, dot, dot. And it helps them to start to suss out what are the things that I've done over my professional life that have been strengths. And I like to do all three of these because you often see things line up. They're labeled differently, but you look at the three different sources and you go, huh, it's interesting. Each one was different, but look at this particular strength that came up in each of them. And that really gives you this solid confidence. Oh yeah, that's a really important strength for me because it, you, can't, you can't restrain it. It comes up no matter how you ask the question. That's great. Well, Larry, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like I could listen to this uh, for much, much longer, but um, I know our time is ending. So thank you so much. Um, we're going to be back next time uh, to talk about engagement and to talk more about how to ensure that members of our organization feel connected, they give us their best, and that they're happy and want to be here. So um, I can't thank you enough, Larry. Thanks so much for your expertise, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Susan. It's always a pleasure.